Welcome to Gloom Squad. Every week we'll be showcasing a nonprofit organization that helps those affected by mental illness. This week's episode, we will be featuring the Wellness Shack. They have phone support Monday through Friday from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. right now due to COVID. All resources are free and they have informal peer lead groups, formal peer support with trained specialists, educational support, activities like arts and crafts and games. They have self-help resources like webinars, books, podcasts, DVDs, and socialization. Wow, that was a hard word. <laughs> they have a lot of resource links on their webpage and an event calendar. Feel free to visit them on their webpage for more information. episode two and we're going to be talking about the male perspective of mental health mental health in asian culture stereotyping and raising boys to be mentally healthy we went with an easy first interviewee so we asked alex here to be our first guest <laughs> we've talked about our relationships with alex in the last episode but we'll let him tell us a little bit about himself hi guys hi hello <laughs> thanks for having me on um yeah alex vang um Born and raised in Fresno, California. I spent the majority of my youth in Vegas, of all places. That's usually a surprising factor for some folks. Um, moved to Minnesota when I was in middle school, and I've been in Wisconsin basically ever since the start of high school. So I went to the University of Eau Claire here. Um, I haven't found a reason to leave just yet. That's cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so kind of like we mentioned in the last episode, you have two boys. Britt has a little boy. Right, yeah. Um, you guys all live together in the same household, so we're going to talk a little bit about that perspective of you being a parent, and then you also being a male, and some other different stereotypes around mental health and sure. stigmas like that. Um, I guess the first question I would like to ask is, did you grow up understanding what mental health was or knowing how to take care of your mental health? I don't think so. Um, that's a great question. I really feel like I haven't focused on that subject since, um, or until recently. I don't, yeah. I think I, maybe it's really easy to say maybe I was in denial, but I'm not sure if that's a cultural thing. It's not something that we talk about, at least within the Hmong community, you know, um, Do so, you think that's like a, like your personal family thing or just like a whole like Hmong community? I just don't think, I think as a culture, they don't recognize right. it. You know, I actually think that, um, mental health is probably... To them, it's something else. Um, it, it's it's some sort of other illness, right? There's no such thing as a mental illness. But even culturally, it's not something that I, I think was willing to accept, even as a young adult, that I might have codependency issues or some other types of issues. So it might just be denial. It might just be manlyhood <laughs> denial. But also, I don't think culturally the path was paved to recognize yeah. such a thing. Do you think that codependency is something that's just you or do you think that's also a cultural thing just with Hmong people being very and lots of people in tight quarters they typically have very large families and stuff right. like that so do you think that that's your family as well just kind of like what Marie asked with the last one I definitely think my codependency issues come from the family unit and how that's set up mm -hmm. um, I just think that there's a very set structure on on roles within the family and that also ends up dictating your emotional role if that makes sense yeah so um, are they very patriarchal yes yep the men 
lead the way. The women, uh, for the most part, uh, are quite obedient. The, that's for the longest time polygamy was practiced. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some of my earliest memories of my grandfather, who just passed away from COVID complications, he had four wives, and he's the only person that I know of that was in polygamous relationships. But we were close growing up, and I think that's my first indication that that we're different. So, the family structure is different. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. So, like, based on that culture, I guess, how did that shape your outlook on mental health generally and kind of what it means to be a man in that culture? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like I still struggle with that um, regardless of the cultural beginnings, just the definition of what it means to be a man. And that's evolving. I feel like evolving all the time. We're, it's definitely evolving culturally. Yeah, and we're we're more woke than we ever have been. Right, that's just the that's popular culture for you, but so Wouldn't so. Would you argue that every culture feels that they're the woke culture because we're <laughs> constantly making progress? Right. So by yeah. saying that we're the woke culture now is probably correct, but back in the '60s and '70s, like our grandparents thought that, or or even our parents thought that they were the woke culture. Yeah. Like every generation, though, every generation thinks like this is what we have to offer. This is right. a big step in what we're doing. And we always think we're on the cutting edge right. of mm-hmm. cultural norms and whatnot. Yeah, those are all true points. Uh, I guess I just feel like American culture now, it's all about identity and breaking walls, right? Mm-hmm. And identity is way more fluid on, on many levels, right? If we're trying to get rid of definitions. You are what you are. You feel what you feel. So I feel like I'm still figuring that out, but I definitely constantly think back to my earliest exposures of the definition of man and what it means and how... I'm the oldest male in my family, my direct family, which means that I've got this subtle extra responsibility to take care of all family members and to be the representative of the family when it comes to cultural traditions. And, you know, admittedly, I'm not very good at that. I haven't, I'm not very cultured and I haven't been close to the culture since I was really young. So I haven't, I've had to figure out what that means for myself and twist that into something that makes sense considering my my upbringing right and it's kind of a blending of, of cultures a blending of being you know an american and a Hmong and like, all, the time. You know, all that stuff so that's yeah. kind of interesting but i guess like before we really dive into the mental health and the stereotype aspect of it is there anything like mental health wise that you want to share about yourself before you get into some more questions yeah uh recently within the last couple of years coming to the terms with codependency and toxic codependency and a lot of those uh tendencies i'm still figuring that out taking notes, going to therapy, all that good stuff. I actually only started going to therapy about two years ago. Um, that's been really eye-opening. I recommend it for, for anyone, even if you think you are of stable mind. I really think it's just, it's going to unveil things that you didn't know were there. But yeah, and I think, um, I mean, COVID doesn't make it any easier, but I think as time goes on, I'm starting to understand that I definitely have depressive episodes. I don't think it's clinical depression, but I've never been diagnosed maybe something to look into, but everything goes back to codependency, my toxic behaviors, et cetera. It, it always goes back to that. Um, how do you talk to your kids about therapy? And I guess our kids about therapy. Yeah, yeah our kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like it hasn't come up a whole lot. The boys know that I go to therapy. I've explained mm-hmm. it to them that it's just, it's a way to talk about these things to someone that isn't, um, you know, a fresh perspective, mm-hmm. someone that isn't emotionally involved in your life and someone you can just talk to and be open to talk about some, some of your inner thoughts and your conflicts. 
Um, beyond that, I don't think they've been exposed to the idea well, too much. Well, that's not really necessarily true because LinkedIn goes to therapy. And right. And starting to bring Maddox to therapy because we're noticing some issues. The idea that. of therapy, yes. Just my personal journey oh, and therapy. Yeah, yeah that's not mm -hmm. something that they're that we talk about a whole lot, but I think... The idea of therapies there, and you guys are obviously really open to it, and open right. to talking about it, and I think that's something that's good to kind of introduce at a young age like they are. Yeah. I mean, Maddox is, what, six? Mm -hmm. And then how old is Layton? He's, He's ten. ten. So, yeah. I mean, that's awesome that they're yeah. doing that, because I wasn't introduced to any of that stuff, kind of like we talked about my family background a little bit, and so for me, like, I get so anxious even just going to therapy because it's a stranger. And it's cool to have somebody who's disconnected socially from your life, but I have yeah. such a hard time opening up and having, like, to find that right person and that right fit. That's a really good point, too. Leighton really enjoys it. That's awesome. He loves his therapist. That's and awesome. And he, out of, I think out of most kids his age, he really does take advantage of the benefits of therapy. He loves being able to say whatever's on his mind. Um, and he and Angela... Hopefully that's okay to mention her name. They have a really good relationship, um, and he's really positive about it. He's even shared his positivity towards it to Maddox, to the other kids. Yeah. Um, I guess just with my bipolar disorder um, and the fact that it runs in families, I just thought it would be a good idea to get Maddox into therapy because if that is something that he ends up happening, having, um, I just think it's good to get those building blocks and that foundation of support and... You know, it's just beneficial to get those, to have a third person with no emotional attachments to tell you, hey, this mania is taking over and that's why you're feeling these things and that's why you're reacting the way you do. So I just think that personally that Maddox having that support system so young and being able to carry that through is going to be way more beneficial than what I personally went through with my bipolar diagnosis and being diagnosed so late and not having those building blocks to better... Um, handle my treatments can and I, emotions can i add to that real quick? yeah yeah i think one thing that's interesting about having gone to therapy is you learn really quickly that a lot of your toxic behaviors um unknowingly you are training into your children so you know, not only are you trying to stop it for yourself but you're trying to stop it in them you know so mm -hmm. i think that's something that i'm still learning about i definitely don't no, pick up on those all not the time. something you think about right off the bat too because mm -hmm. you're you and you've raised your kids and you behave the way you behave and you right. didn't really notice that thing or you weren't you were in like you said kind of in denial about x y and z or things that you may now go to therapy for and right. you didn't think about that before and so your kids observe and they learn by observing and that could potentially be something that's passed on to them yeah and conversely it also means that there are toxic behaviors that you picked up from your own parents right right so you pick up on that all the time yeah so you see really like therapy forward you're encouraging it obviously in your children would you encourage it in other males yeah adult males kids yeah and especially as cultural values are being challenged all the time i feel like there are walls we put up as men that society says hey you can put up this wall because you're a man but through therapy you start to challenge those walls and whether or not they even mean anything um so yes i think it's important for the male ego to be to be checked and that sounds maybe hypocritical because <laughs> do you check that with your friends? Do you call them up for their toxic masculinity? Right, and you know what? Not as much as I should, I don't think. Yeah, I don't call it out for myself either. Not as much as I should. There's, I feel like a lot of stigma around males going to therapy. You hear a lot more about females going to therapy, and now that we're kind of in this more immersed culture of being more aware of mental health and kind of trying to make it a little less taboo about right. talking about it or anything like that, um, males generally aren't on the forefront of that a lot. It's no. a lot of women that you see. So... I guess what advice would you give to somebody who's struggling but does put up that wall and kind of like 
says, well, I'm a man, I can deal with it, like, buck up, rub a little dirt on it. Yeah, and I think that's the problem, is denying yourself the ability to, to, to feel your feelings. You know, as men, you're taught not to cry, you're taught to be strong, you need to be, maybe not numb, but you need to be strong to the point of being numb. And I think that's the wall that we're breaking, is being more honest with ourselves. And, and holding ourselves accountable. But if we feel pain, to accept pain, to process through the pain, right? Boys can't cry, right? The old saying. Um, I think that would be my advice, is just to be honest with yourself. Which is hard to do. Yeah, I struggle with it. Being vulnerable is hard, no matter what the gender is. And I feel like men are told that vulnerability is weak. And so by bringing that vulnerability, they're seen as not being able to... Um, be worthy of love and acceptance because that vulnerability is seen as you're weak and yeah. you're bad and that's terrible. And those elements are typical of your patriarchal yeah. setup, right? Mm-hmm. So that only reinforces that idea. So we talked a little bit about toxic masculinity. Could you define that for yourself? What does that mean to you? Um, to me, it's, it's stubbornness and an unwillingness to validate others' feelings. Uh, and taking responsibility for your own actions and the implications of your words. Um, I feel like it's way easy to be offensive as a man and just play it off as I'm just joking or you're too sensitive and I don't care about your sensitivities. So I think it just comes down to respecting others and taking accountability for causing pain. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like that term. They think it's really harsh. Is that... Do you have an opinion on that at all? The toxic masculinity? Yeah. No, because I feel like it's very real. I just feel like it's... it's um, I'm privileged as a man. You know, society gives me the benefit of the doubt, right? So I feel like toxic masculinity is a very real thing. So I, I don't think it's controversial, personally. Mm-hmm. I can acknowledge that society thinks it is, but I think it's a very real phenomenon. How do you teach the boys about toxic masculinity or I guess do you teach the boys about I guess a better way to phrase that is how do you teach the boys to not have that toxic masculinity yeah and I don't I don't think they understand gender roles as much as uh I don't know I just feel like they that's not defined for them yet so it's very easy to say instead of you know this is how you're supposed to act as a boy it's very easy to just say hey treat others how you expect to be treated I don't delineate I don't say you know it doesn't, you know, I don't say it's a girl, so you have to treat her this way. No, I just, everyone deserves respect, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm not going to classify. And I feel, I feel like if I don't classify, they don't start separating pathways themselves. Like, oh, if it's a girl, I have to act this way. And to other boys, I have to act this way. So I don't, I don't think I delineate. Were you taught that as a kid? Like, if it's a girl, you have to... No. Uh, it's, it, I was, or is that more or... of a societal thing? Societal thing, I for sure. Thought. I yeah. feel like I went to public school and I feel like that was kind of thing like teachers were like oh well she's a girl like be gentle or be nice or be kind or oh, whatever yeah. and boys are you know playing dodgeball and kickball in the gym and oh, yeah. no one cared as much. I think my biggest issue that I've had um, was that like when a boy likes you and they're mean to you and the mm-hmm. teacher's like oh he just likes you and it's like I hate that. No he's being a dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah and I think even looking back yeah definitely was raised with boys will be boys yep. girls are girls. They do very separate things. Even in the classroom, they designate colors Someone based on sex. Someone bought a shirt that said boys will be boys, and I threw it out. And I yeah. said, oh, I'm sorry, I lost it. Because somebody was like, oh, where's that outfit that I got from Maddox? It's yep. so cute. I'm like, that wasn't cute. That was gross. Yeah. 
And I think maybe as a kid that wasn't shocking to me because it aligned with my familial values. That's what my parents were teaching me as well. But I feel like modern kids don't have to deal with that. At least, you know, we have young kids in school. It doesn't really, it feels like schools are more open-minded towards breaking yeah. those barriers. And I saw the other day, I was scrolling through like Instagram reels <laughs> or whatever, and I was looking and this teacher came up that I guess is like fairly popular on, on TikTok and some other things. And he teaches pretty young kids, like kindergarten for second grade. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, at the end of the day, instead of saying like, go home to your parents or go home to do this, he just says, go home and enjoy time with your grownups. Which I thought was really cool oh, because yeah. that's inclusive then to everybody because not everybody lives with parents and not, and I think that's kind of more of the way society's starting to lean is being more inclusive on a lot of levels, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I I, I don't know who I spoke to about this recently, um, but I just feel like kids are more encouraged to be open and honest with themselves. Um, generally, you know, can't can't paint with a broad brush here. I definitely think that that doesn't. That's not the case for everyone, mm-hmm. depending on your family type and your beliefs. But I feel like generally public schools are more open-minded. What kind of stereotyping do you see being like an Asian American or anything like that? Is there any kind of stigma or stereotyping that you think could contribute to mental health? Yeah, I think I'm still struggling with that too. I'm struggling with a lot of things today, apparently. But um, it's okay, we're all on the struggle bus. Yeah. yeah, this is a podcast about the struggle bus. So. I don't. <laughs> first and foremost, I don't think I align with a lot of the the values of of the male in the Hmong culture as it is. Um, but I definitely know that it's been difficult to come to terms with with what I really am. You know, um, value wise, what. It's tough not having that strong background to say that I absolutely align with these folks 100% of the time. It's the nature of being a first-generation Hmong American. Um, Do you think you feel disconnected from the Hmong culture because you see those stereotypes and you see that toxic masculinity within it and you're kind of breaking that barrier? And so do you feel a disconnect because you're doing that? I absolutely feel a disconnect, yeah. And it's hard to carve an identity out of that. Mm-hmm. I do my best just to, to follow my own rules and be, be a good person generally. Um, that gets muddied even further by, by public depictions of American Asians. I feel like um, American Asians are often shown as you know, really smart and really successful. Um, but that's just odd to me. You know, I, I, it's not just the Hmong culture. It's several other cultures are going through this first generation um, assimilation, you know, and there are a lot of values that are dissipating or transforming. So yeah, I, I feel like um, I've had a hard time explaining what that identity is. I still do. I think people have like this idea of what an Asian American is, and it sets up unrealistic goals for you. And you almost feel—I guess I shouldn't say you feel—but I, I guess I could see how that would make you feel guilty that you're not living up to the standards of what these people expect from you. Yeah. Yeah, I think I could agree with that. I've also had odd confrontations even here in town, and people are shocked at my English. They'll say, wow, it's really easy to understand you. And that's, I don't know how to take that. Right? How, I mean, I don't think anyone knows how to take that. Right. right? My, I, my instinct is to take offense to that. That's not the intention of the person. They're literally just, you know, they're just pointing out an observation. Wow, your, your English is really good, and you have, you know, you must have really good grades. That's odd. That's odd. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you react to that? Yeah, I guess that's, I've never really, 
I don't say that to people, but I also <laughs> grew up with like German grandparents and a Russian like basically right. step grandfather and people that I've always grew up around people with like accents and who spoke multiple languages. And but what does that say about people in town and what they're exposed to? Yeah, right? I don't know. I guess that's kind of I never would do that myself, so I guess I never thought about it. Yeah, I play I play music in town a lot. Um, I play in a couple bands, and I played in Chippewa one time, and this gentleman walked up to me, and he was he was flabbergasted you know where are you from and i was like five minutes south of here <laughs> you know <laughs> he was like i was it's like he'd never been exposed to an asian person i'm like dude there's plenty of asian folks yeah it's not like this is a small area exactly so i mean but you know people, i feel like there's a lot of small town people that enjoy their small town and enjoy their yes their familial faces so like being exposed to, and a lot of those people are white mm-hmm. and they they're are. not exposed to anything outside of their small town of 400 people and so they don't know how to act right and then they're offended when you're like this is not the correct way to act you should be saying this or please say this or whatever and they're like offended and it's like yeah i'm the one that's offended exactly right. not me. But and i know it's just like why are you taking offense to me correcting you mm-hmm. i, I think that, speak to that toxic masculinity comes in it yeah. does. It for sure does. But, like, growing up in the small, essentially white town in northern Michigan that mm-hmm. I grew up in, I mean, I graduated with 20 kids in my class. Like, we were not a big town, and we were surrounded by lots and lots of little towns and had to drive an hour to go anywhere to get groceries that weren't stupid expensive from the local store. Sure. So, I mean, we were not exposed to a lot of that stuff. Um, we... I guess my high school and a couple people tried to get us to travel a little bit. We went to, you know, Chicago once, and we went to Washington, D.C. in eighth grade and a couple of things, but it was really only for the kids that could, like, fundraise and pay for it, which isn't necessarily everybody. So you get a lot of kids who have never been out of northern Michigan, never been out of the state, never been, you know, across, for us, the Mackinac Bridge was, like, a huge thing. They've never been across the bridge. They've never (laughs) done any of that stuff, which, to me, is crazy because my family raised me traveling a lot, going to see and experience different cultures and kind of getting to know that. But I guess, I mean, I've seen it firsthand that definitely isn't everybody. And a lot of people tend to stay put where they are and never really expand that horizon. Yeah. And, you know, so I moved here freshman year of high school. Um, and I, I, I want to go to this point because I, I don't want to paint a bad picture of Chippewa or Eau Claire folk. I mean, when I moved here, it was the smallest school I had ever attended, but people were so incredibly welcoming to me. I was not used to that. You know, I've been growing up in big cities with all sorts of cultures my entire life. I moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, uh, predominantly white, and everyone is so nice. <laughs> you know, so that was... Midwest nice, Yes, huh? Midwest nice. <laughs> Everyone's welcoming. They want to get to know you. They want to understand your past. A lot of these kids had gone to school together their entire lives. Mm-hmm. So it was such a different vibe. So, it, you know, small town mentality doesn't exactly mean bigotry necessarily no you know like these folks that were shocked that i was there like the guy from chippewa like it's not coming out of a place of malice exactly it's just coming out of a place of they just don't uneducated. know they they're just uneducated on it. Yeah. yeah ignorance yep you know which in ignorance doesn't necessarily mean arrogance or or negative it's just you just are uneducated about it exactly and i feel like people should be using uneducated i guess i don't like the word ignorance because it has that negative connotation with right. it and it's just like we're not trying to belittle you or demean you is just you don't know right what lack is. of exposure yeah that's it yep 
not willing arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you feel that the Hmong culture and Asian cultures in general are accurately represented in the media? No. I don't think so. Um, I forget this author's name, but he just wrote a book recently and appeared on The Daily Show. And I watched this interview and it just completely resonated with me. But his entire point was that, of course, Hollywood doesn't represent, you know, Asian people clearly. Now, a funny story is I grew up watching kung fu movies with my dad, right? <laughs> and that's like... Your dad still watches them. He still stars. watches them. And that's like, that is the Asian stereotype, right? It's mm-hmm. all martial arts and action. But there's a lot of historical and, you know significance with those martial arts and stuff like it's an art and they're trying to and i think by your dad watching it he's trying to honor that art and america just kind of takes it and makes fun of it and i think that that's really disgusting and also they take that cultural icon and they fit into a little box you know Mm -hmm. that asian americans on the screen are martial artists this is what you are and that's it exactly yeah um so no i would say i would say no and back to the previous point i think Asian media or just American media portrays Asians as successful. Even there are family related shows now that, that revolve around, you know, an Asian family. But it's always the same story, like the dad's a doctor or they're or they're really successful people dealing with cultural assimilation, but again, they're successful. Right? Mm-hmm. And I don't I just don't think that's exactly accurate. No. Yeah. And by that there's almost an underrepresentation of every you know, because everybody's different no matter what. Yeah, and I think one other interesting element to the, you know, Asian stereotypes is that for some reason, the culture, the American culture, feels like Asians are an easy target. You know, making fun of Asians for their stereotypes is not as offensive or isn't blood-soaked, right? It doesn't have a super negative history. Whereas it does. It does, right? Because they were trying... Um, America actually, during... Was it Vietnam when they had the camps in America, Mm -hmm. um, they actually Mm -hmm. tried to turn, or the reason that the um, stereotype actually exists is because they were trying to flip the narrative on how Americans felt Mm -hmm. about Asian Americans. Yes. So they were trying to be like, oh no, we don't actually think that they're these people that are trying to undermine our government and take over. We actually think that they're really smart and it's actually changed how we, and so it actually had like a negative connotation, or Mm -hmm. they tried to change it from a negative connotation and it actually backfired right. and has made it even worse well anytime you paint with a broad brush or you try to identify a group of people with specific traits you're it's going to have negative you know mm-hmm. consequences yeah because it's just but that's that's media for you it feels it feels like they have to pick something <laughs> you know they do they blow a lot of stuff out of proportion and i think there's a lot of stuff in media right now even surrounding like mental health and kind of what we're talking about that is like you see all the drug commercials and you see like how those people are depicted and I always see like the depression drug commercials on TV now and the lady's like got a happy face on a stick and like behind the stick she's all sad and like, sad oh or whatever and I'm like that doesn't encompass like the whole picture that you see no. like I'm not always a sad upset like a horrible down person like yeah I have my moments and obviously my depression comes with that but like that's not me 100% of the time. And it's not like I'm offended by those commercials, but I think, like, that's a big thing that a lot of people see, and that's the only picture they get of it. Because a lot of people don't talk about it. So even if they have people in their family that are depressed, anxious, anything like that, like, they don't... That's what they picture. They picture that, exactly. So I guess that's the point I'm trying to get across. Like, media picks that, and that's the only thing that a lot of people see. And if they're not really exposed to mental health or people who are open about it like we are, that's it. 
than yeah. just like, oh, you're a sad, depressed person, you can't do anything. And if I could take that a step further, um, and I don't know if it's the area or if it's just being a man, but one thing I've confronted a lot, especially lately, is that men don't acknowledge the mental health issues of other people, right? Oh, yeah. And that's, that's definitely some sort of... Um, I think it also has to do with, like, they've always been told, rub some dirt on it and get over it. So exactly. it's just like, why can't you just rub some dirt on it and get over it? And it's right. like, that's... It's not fair that we did that to them, but it's also not fair that now we're trying to educate them and change the narrative, and they're so unwilling to keep moving forward. Well, but I also think that comes from a place of hurt and feeling invalidated in their feelings, so yes. they don't want to validate anybody else's feelings I now. completely agree with that, and that it seems to be a big issue amongst men my age, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And I, I don't know if that's just like a mixture of the values that they've had growing up, like growing up in the 90s and the 2000s, all the way to now. Mm-hmm. But... Well, if you think about it, too, just a lot of stuff, even culturally, has changed since the 90s and the 2000s. Oh, yeah. Like, I was born in the 90s, and my first cell phone was a Nokia freaking brick, and it mm-hmm. was not until I was in, like, the ninth grade that I even got a cell phone, and now you see kids at, you know, five, six, seven walking around with iPads, so, like, we had such a big jump in technology and yes. media and mm-hmm. a lot of stuff like that. Like, we grew into it really, really quickly in our lifetime and me only being 25 almost 26 has seen us go from like dial up i was always playing outside because i didn't want to wait for the computer exactly. and have my mom get off the phone to yeah. have the computer work to i have a tiny computer in my hand right now mm-hmm. yeah I've, like, I've always felt that the on onslaught of social media and the in the evolution of social media it, it it's paired with the evolution of values you know we're becoming such a woke culture i think that's partly because we're you know it has to correspond with this smartphone and how it's invaded the world right invaded everyone's life and anything you have now any thought you have can be shared instantaneously around the world so we're a lot more impulsive but i also think maybe that means we're a lot more honest hopefully yeah i don't know if that's always the case with media and i know they portray a lot of things in different ways and obviously everyone has different opinions um but there's a lot of stuff I guess with this kind of induction of all of this instantaneous sharing that we can do now that is, it's done a lot of harm, but it's also done a lot of good. So yeah. I think that's part of also where you're saying the social media has kind of paired with our culture. Well, it's also kind of paired with our mental health and the way we see that too. Yeah. And when people online share a value that represents the past, bigotry, racism, they're going to deal with consequences immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, people calling people out for negative behavior is a prominent activity these days you know i I think that's a good thing obviously now you can say what you want to say about cancel culture and how dangerous that might be um i think it takes away the ability for rehabilitation and you know yes and i think that that's i think that's dangerous and i think it kind of sets this precedence of you're a bad person so you're always going to be a bad person and right. that's not fair like i agree with part of it i agree with calling someone out for negative behavior but i also think people have to be open-minded to like you said people have the capacity to change and i think that's the biggest problem with cancel culture right is, we're not giving the people the platform to right? change. no opportunity they did this one bad thing 20 years ago even though it was 20 years ago so f them exactly and F everything they do, get their names off products, etc. You know, stop watching their shows, list goes on and on. I, I agree with it to some degree. You know, when I agree the, with doing it until they've shown that right. there's it's that retribution. Yeah. It is. But when the harming. pendulum swings back, it swings back really hard. You have to be loud. You have to be almost 
violent with it. I, I understand there are consequences. You know, it's dangerous to just, as a society, say, no, we're not putting up with any of that ever again, and anybody that does it doesn't belong. And a lot of like stuff has good intentions there, but it's always that stuff that is on a large scale has really good intentions that, like you said, the pendulum swings back, and there's always those consequences that go along with it. Right. Sacrifice. There's, there's some sacrificial lambs involved in that cultural movement. That's, that's cancel culture in, I think, a nutshell. But I do agree that it's dangerous. I, you know, a good example is Liam Neeson. When he came out and he said that he was racist for a number of years because his wife or girlfriend had had explained to him that she had been raped by an African-American male at one time. So he took it upon himself to roam the streets at night looking to start trouble with black males. And he came forward with that and he said, look, I did this for a number of years. I went to therapy for it. I feel horrible about it because it's wrong. But that was my initial reaction. And people, you know, cancel culture ate him up right away. Right. And that's, you know, look, he he came out and said he went to therapy for it. And, and he's trying to... He grew to, from it. He yeah, learned from it. But the culture says... You don't have to be his friend. Like, you don't, you know, that can be something that you can't look past. Mm-hmm. But he shouldn't be able to not live his life and continue to make friendships. And continue to grow it. from that experience and learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've done a lot of bad things with my bipolar, and during manic and depressive episodes, I know I've hurt people. Does that mean that I'm unlovable and I shouldn't have friends in the future because I learned from it and can be a better friend now? Right. No. And so I think that that's had a lot of stigma with bipolar people is that, like, oh, they're just going to go off on these manic episodes and they're just going to hurt you and they're unstable and all this stuff and it's like that's a very harmful thing and it makes me feel like I have no ability for rehabilitation right and maybe that ties into modern social media and having to make a decision right now having to label something right now and move on right modern society wants black and white they don't want they don't want gray it's either bad or it's good if it's bad I don't accept it anymore move on swipe whatever you know Mm mm-hmm so maybe that's just our, you know, clickbait nature. It might be. Yes, modern society. For sure. So, like, we talked a little bit about your codependency and, and how you're kind of dealing with that. Is there a certain thing that kind of made you notice that it was a problem or notice that you needed to, you know, go to therapy or talk to somebody about it? Yes. <laughs> and, she's sitting in the, <laughs> and she's sitting in the same room. Um, so after splitting with my ex-wife, I really struggled to get close to people. For a number of years. And I really didn't acknowledge it at all. It's just like, oh, I'm just healing. It just is what it is. Uh, when there's really actually a lot of trauma associated with it, I never worked through it. And I still have to work through it now. Um, toxic behaviors, uh, unwilling to 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 really uh, invest, you know, really scared to jump off the ledge. Um, that still happens. Sorry, mm-hmm. Brett. Um, but... But we're open about it. We talk about it a lot. And that's the primary goal of going to therapy is to understand these things and try to break them down. But definitely trauma associated with the marriage and just all the after effects. Is there a certain coping mechanism that you did previously that you learned was bad? And are there good coping mechanisms you kind of have now? Things you do to get yourself out of a rut or when you notice it, say, hey, let's take a step back. I can comment on a lot of the toxic ones, you know. Um, There's a lot of forms of escape Mm -hmm. I had, whether it's, you know, drinking or going out, um, dating incessantly, just kind of cycling through people. That's a thing of the past. 
and um, music as positive as of a force as it is in my life, it was very easy to fill up my schedule with it. I don't have to deal with anything because I'm so busy, right? I've got music to do all the time. And I think the pandemic's kind of helped me realize that as well. But yeah, I think just escaping in general, too much. It's too easy to escape. It is. Yeah. And I guess, is there anything now that you're realizing that's like a healthy thing for you that when you get into a rut or get into that, that you say, hey, let's go do this one thing because this yeah. helps me? Um, for me, it's just having an honest face-to-face conversation. I think that sounds really simple. It's hard but for it's, a lot of people. It's not yeah. easy to do. No. It's not, and I struggle with it. I really do, but there's there's something about it. It's um, a simple act, but it's a huge mental block. It absolutely is. And you, you can't... You can't help but be yourself when it comes to a face-to-face conversation and be real about any given set of circumstances. Well, that's another so, thing, too, is social media. It's easy to hide behind the text message or an email or uh, yeah, Or this call. fake persona that you set up for yourself right. on Facebook, right? Yeah. So I think having a real conversation, and I this is actually a topic that I have with my bandmates and my friends a lot, is we acknowledge each other's toxic behaviors and we try to have as many face-to-face conversations as we can and nobody ever wants to do it it's way too easy to just text about it forget about it pretend it doesn't exist so. I know that's something that we've had an issue with because you tried to do that yeah. for a long time and I finally called you out on it and you had a huge adverse reaction to it yeah I got really defensive you know and I was like I can't keep not talking about these things and you're you kind of gave me the middle finger and you're like, I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah. And I had to respect that boundary and be like, okay, he's not ready to talk about it, mm-hmm. but I need to respect my mental health and realize that I can't not talk about it. Yeah. And in the moment, I really struggle with admitting it and saying, yeah, that that's what's happening. I don't, I'm in the middle of a toxic cycle. I don't see it until I'm on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And I look back and I'm like, okay, that was wrong on a lot of levels. And I, you know, you have to undo all of that stuff. So. It's tiring, but it's it has to be done. Which is, it's, I think it's good for you, but it's hard to admit yeah. to yourself that you're doing something wrong. Yep, and that's another toxic behavior is looking to get validated by other people yep. all the time, but not validating their feelings, mm-hmm. you know, chasing validation all the time. Another think, form of escape. Yeah, and that's in all relationships too, like not yes. only like romantic, romantic relationships, but like friendships and people yes. in your family and, you know, like your sisters and brothers. And 100%. It's hard to confront those people even though you, you know, grew up with them or are close to them. Yeah, and I, this actually answers one of your previous questions about the Hmong culture and family setup, but I think the idea of blocking out a toxic family member just isn't, it's not a thing. You know, it's not a tool that anyone accepts. Family is family. You know, blood's thicker than water type of thing. No matter how bad they are, no matter how low they are, me as the older, oldest male, I have to be there to save them. So I, I confront that a lot. That's something that you and I have had oh, yeah. a lot of conversations over. Yeah. Conversation's it, probably a better word, but... Yeah, it becomes a sticking point. Yeah, because it bleeds into other facets of life, mm-hmm. of course. Oh, yeah. And there, in the Hmong culture too, I've noticed there's a lot of uh, superstitions or stories yeah. or stuff like a lot of things that you guys believe in and have stories around and traditions around, etc. Mm-hmm. So I guess was there something growing up that kind of also may have played into your mental health, or you think could have played into mental health within your culture, like superstition-wise, or something that you grew up believing that maybe not necessarily everyone else did? No, I don't think so. I just think, I think that's just the cultural customs, mm-hmm. you know, that's just the roles that have been provided to, to men versus women. 
um, it's just innate. So I wouldn't say it's a superstition. It's just configuration. That is just the way the family is set up. That's a good question though. And again, you're you're talking to the wrong Hmong person because <laughs> I'm not I'm not culturally knowledgeable, and it's something that I'm you know very insecure about. It's something that that I battle with a lot, but. Is what it is. Again, it's part of that first generation Hmong American, you know, lack of identity, not being able to even speak about those values or defend those values because I've never represented them. You feel like you kind of jumped feet first into the American culture versus kind of learning Hmong culture and. Yeah, so you know, I was surrounded by Hmong people up until I was two, and then we moved to Vegas, and Vegas is predominantly white, Mexican or Hispanic, um, very. Uh, no other Hmong people besides my direct family and some cousins. So I I don't think I was really ever exposed to it. You know, I from the ages of 2 to 11, I lived in Vegas. And then I moved to the Twin Cities, Minnesota, which is a hub for Hmong folks. And immediately, I was thrown back into that culture. And it was really during middle school. Like, middle school sucks for everyone. <laughs> can't can't be yeah. uh, But it sucks extra to go through a cultural identity crisis in seventh grade mm -hmm. you know i moving to minnesota and then going to school with the and, and you know all the Hmong kids sit together and they're wondering why you aren't sitting with them and then when they come introduce themselves to you you don't understand them you don't understand their ways you know it's it was a huge shock um <laughs> so that still sticks with me yeah i think it's something that it's a different outside of the box middle school experience, but a lot of people have their own little middle school traumas, I guess, that they oh, still yeah. deal with. Well, your body's changing, your mind's changing. There's so many changes, and you can't keep up with them, and you can't comprehend exactly what's going on with your body. And right. it's just, it's not fun. And your your ability to network socially is, is evolving, too, you know, mm -hmm. right in front of you. So you're, you're learning how to form friendships. <laughs> that was me off, you know, off the starting line. It, awkward. Well, because middle school is also like you're going to different classes with different people. You're not with the same 20, at least like me. I wasn't with the same 20 kids mm -hmm. every day, all day, going to your specials going and then going through all that stuff. So you're constantly being exposed to all these different people that you didn't even know and you went to the same school with for years. Right. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Yeah. Um, maybe in conclusion, I think it's really important to to look outside your culture, but, and I'm being a hypocrite here, it's also really important to understand where you came from. I think even if you don't exactly identify with it, to understand it is going to help you piece things together. You know, mysteries about yourself, things that you don't understand. And when you don't understand yourself very well, that's going to lead to some level of toxic behavior. Um, so I'm still figuring all that stuff out, but going through therapy to challenge the values of being a man in this culture and, and um, my, my Hmong culture. I think it's been really, really important, eye-opening, painful, but for good reason. So I just think, you know, being a black sheep that I am, I think it's really important for people that even aren't black sheep to, to take a hard look at themselves and other cultures and really be open-minded. Sorry for the long-winded answer. I was kind of all over the place. Thank you for including our podcast with us. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks for doing this with us. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun and really excited about this podcast for you guys. I, I love it. Thanks. Yeah. You too. Good. Well, thanks for your time and your insight. Yeah. Hopefully, your perspective. Hopefully it's not the last time.
I'm sure it won't be. Great. I have to deal with you every day, so. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have a lot to talk about, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Gloom Squad. Our next episode will come out on January 27th to stay on track with every other week releasing episodes. If you have any suggestions or questions, please reach out to our Gmail, gloomsquadpod at gmail.com, or check into our Instagram for updates, and you can message us there as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.